This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today we're joined by two people from the Atlanta Botanical Garden, soon to be reprising an exhibit of Chihuly glass sculptures to be installed throughout the garden. We speak with both about their own gardening interests, which are not particularly plant-based, and about the age-old appeal of the human hand as art, sculpture, and architecture inherent in what can make a beautiful garden. In the first half of the program, we'll speak with Mary Pat Matheson, president and CEO of the Botanical Garden since 2002. Mary Pat is a described non-gardening garden lover. She joins us today from the gardens. After the break, we'll speak with George DeMann, businessman, poet, world traveler, sculptor, and one of a handful of civic-minded Atlantans who founded the Atlanta Botanical Gardens, and he served as the founding president. Welcome, Mary Pat. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. So as an advocate myself for gardening and gardens and deepening our human interaction with the natural world all around us, I am a big believer that the world needs gardens, gardeners, and natural historians, but also garden lovers. You describe yourself in everything I've read as a dedicated garden lover, but that you leave the gardening to your husband. I love this. So (laughs) talk a little. Well, you know, if you asked someone who led an art museum, if they're an artist, you know, it would not be unusual to have them say, no, I'm not an artist. I'm Mm -hmm. an art historian or whatever else, but I don't paint. And I'm a little that way. I don't paint with plants, but I love plants. I love gardens. They're in my DNA. And I always think what's interesting about people who love gardens and are involved in gardening is how they were inoculated with that at a young age. And I was inoculated by my father who grew azaleas in Maryland and who was very good at propagating them and had them in the window well during the winter so they would root on. And then my best friend's father, Mr. White, who grew the peaches. So I was inoculated at a young age to appreciate and love gardens, but I never developed the love or the aptitude for digging in the weeds and being on my knees and doing all the things that you're right, my husband does. <laughs> well, that is wonderful. And so what led you to join the Atlantic Botanical Garden in 2002 when you, when you joined up and moved from the West after a long time? I did. We had been, you know, really centered in a wonderful community, Park City, Utah. Had lots of friends and loved the mountains and could ski and hike and, yes, garden. Um, And a wonderful job at Red Butte Garden at the University of Utah. But I had been there for 20 years. And there you get to the point where sometimes you start to feel like that movie, Every Day is Groundhog Day. You wake up and you do the same thing. And that's not something I've ever been good at. I like change. I'm a very dynamic leader. Anyone would use that word in describing me. Um, I love raising money to build beautiful gardens. And I didn't feel like we were going to be able to do as much there in the future as we've done in the past. And this very tenacious headhunter kept calling me saying, we want you to come to Atlanta. And I thought, well, we don't see ourselves in the South. You know, we've been in the West for 30 years. And as I said, she was tenacious, and she said, come and see Atlanta, see what kind of community it is. And one of the things you know when you get here is Atlanta's a city of trees. So we're in the West, we had those big, beautiful, wide-open views in the mountains. Here in Atlanta, we have these magnificent green trees that just 
you know, embrace you wherever you are. And um, my mountain references became high-rise buildings of the city, and I hadn't lived in a city for a long time. So we decided to just jump off the cliff, change the flora, fauna, culture, climate, (laughs) and everything about our lives and move to Atlanta. And we've never looked back. It's been wonderful. Though I will say we miss the West. (laughs) Well, I would guess that the West misses you as well, but it sounds like you are in the right place. And shortly after you joined the Botanical Garden there, uh, you started really amping up what was happening there. And, and the garden has mm-hmm. grown tremendously under your your leadership. And a couple of the things that I really noticed uh, in looking over the history of the garden is how many big and attractive sculpture shows you brought to the garden, including Henry Moore and mm-hmm. including the, the first round of the Chihuly exhibit at the gardens in 2004. So give us a sense of what you know, they're blockbuster shows. They're they're bound to, to bring a crowd. But what is it, do you think, on a personal level for you, draws people to this idea of human-made art in the garden specifically? Well, I love the question because I think, you know, to turn it on its head, I always have said to people in my field who used to question in the early years why we do sculpture and art in the garden – I mean, my my perspective is when did we ever take it out of the garden? Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's a folly in the garden or it's a chime in the garden or someone's handmade sculpture, art has always been incorporated into the garden. And and I think landscape design is, is also a very strong form of art. So um, I'm also inoculated by artists in my life. My father was also an artist, even though he was a federal judge, but he painted around the house. He did caricatures of us. My husband's an artist, my sister's an artist, my brother-in-law. And I just have always loved not just art, I mean, I love art, but but also three-dimensional art sculpture because in a garden setting, you just set it free. And Henry Moore knew that as well as anyone. If you go see his work at Perry Green in, in England, you know, it's up in the pastures where the sheep are, and you can see the sheep grazing under some of his magnificent pieces. So I love the juxtaposition of large and inner and beautiful and sometimes interactive sculpture with a garden and designing some of the features of the garden in reaction to the art. And the other piece of that is that when I got here, and it's just been a perspective of mine since I've been a a leader of a garden, even at Red Butte, that we have to break the mold of who visits the garden. Um, We know the gardeners are going to come. That's preaching to the choir. But in a world where we have bigger environmental issues, loss of biodiversity, loss of rare and endangered species, and you know climate change and other environmental challenges ahead, we need to inoculate everyone in our community and our young children with the appreciation of nature. And the way to do that is to get them into the garden and integrating art as a part of a major exhibition, and in some cases smaller exhibitions into the garden setting as a seasonal attraction really works. We know it works. It creates a sense of urgency to visit. Yeah. So the Henry Moore sculptures are are very human, very evocative of the human shape and, and human subjects. The Chihuly is very different. Describe the Chihuly installations that people can look forward to in the gardens this spring. And I believe the show runs from April 26th with some of the first opening member previews. 
I think, officially open to the public on the 30th, and it runs through October. That's right. And this is a return of Dale's work. It was here in 2004. So 12 years later, we as a garden have grown. We put over $110 million worth of new facilities and gardens and and buildings and a new restaurant um, since his last visit. And Dale Chihuly as an artist has grown tremendously and uh, showcased his wonderful work across the world. So his work has changed as the garden has changed. And this will be one of the larger exhibitions he's done in an outdoor setting. It's complementary to the garden. Um, you can expect bold color, as you would expect from Dale. And um, some things like he, he's used his beautiful red reeds. He's going to display them in a new way. That The last time I think he did was in Jerusalem in the early 2000s, where he sets them up almost as teepees, where they're crossing at an angle. A very interesting way to display the red reeds. We will have a blue icicle tower. We're going to have a wonderful yellow, lime green sunburst um, tower that will be right across from the restaurant. Glass will be integrated throughout the garden and even in the Orchid Center, where his beautiful green and black pieces that are so sensual and reminiscent of natural things, whether it's herons or plants or reeds, are integrated in with our orchid collection. And then don't be surprised to see a bright yellow, fantastic, 35 to 40 foot, I can't remember how tall it is, yellow neon tower Mm -hmm. that will be reflected in one of our pools of water out in Stores of Woods, which is our beautiful woodland one of the only intact woodlands left in the city of Atlanta. A spectacular show, I promise. That sounds fantastic. I so appreciate you being with us here today, and I look forward to um, hopefully visiting before October and um, seeing a lot about it online. Well, you would be welcome to come. We would love to have you and any of your listeners, and I've enjoyed this very much. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking with Mary Pat Matheson, president and CEO since 2002 of the Atlanta Botanical Gardens in Atlanta, Georgia. We'll be right back after the break to hear more about the beginnings of the gardens in the 1970s and 80s and how one of the core founders set the scene for welcoming elements of the human hand rather than plants only into the gardens, thereby broadening their appeal. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and if you're just joining us, this is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. 
Before the break, we spoke with Mary Pat Matheson, president and CEO of the Atlanta Botanical Gardens. We're now joined by George DeMann, businessman, poet, world traveler, sculptor, and one of a handful of civic-minded Atlantans who founded the Atlanta Botanical Gardens, and he served as founding president. With a love of vernacular and notable architecture formed through early life experiences, George evolved into a person for whom gardens were important, but for whom the human built elements within a garden, including architecture and sculpture, played co-starring roles to the plants. He refers to this as an aesthetic symbiosis. His home garden in Atlanta is filled with colorful, lively sculptures of his own creation. His work with the Atlanta Botanical Gardens over these many years has included being instrumental in bringing traveling sculpture exhibits from the likes of Henry Moore and glass artist Dale Chihuly into the Botanic Gardens. He was the original founding president of the gardens and is currently a life trustee. Welcome, George. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. So tell us a little bit about your early influences in the world of gardens or horticulture and natural history. Well, it goes back to my earliest days in Arkansas, Helena, Arkansas, a little town on the Mississippi River where we had a family farm. And I learned my horticulture by seeing lots of crops being grown, primarily cotton, soybeans, corn, that sort of thing, but also some truck gardening, which were enclosed with a very high fence to keep out rabbits and deer, and they grew everything imaginable in that, turnips, cabbage, carrots, you, you name it, all the truck gardening things. So real horticulture as opposed to vast fields of you know, cotton and soybeans. Uh, also, we had a gardener that would come to the house in town. We had a lovely old Victorian home in Helena, Arkansas, which has since been given to the University of Arkansas system, and as part of their educational program ongoing. We had a gardener who came up from the country, Cornelia Johnson, and I called her the old witch. She was certainly old, but she was no witch, except she was very bewitching with what she grew. She grew zinnias and all sorts of country plants, castor bean, all that wonderful sort of stuff that grows around people's country homes, and my mother wanted that at the house in town. So those two early, early influences. Then I went off to school, um, St. Paul's School in Concord, New Hampshire, on to Harvard as an undergrad. But uh, that was early on, and I didn't major in it. I majored in government and went on to law school at the University of Virginia, which I did not like, though I liked very much Thomas Jefferson's architecture. He did the entire campus of that university and much landscaping. His home, Monticello, need not be mentioned. It's so famous. Um, and those sorts of influences, I suddenly realized I really wanted to be an architect. So I decided to drop out of law school and go to architecture school. Well, I had no credits from Harvard in any of the relevant subjects, except a little landscape architecture. I had gotten advanced standing in math, so I never took calculus, I never took physics, I never took engineering. So I had to go somewhere and get all those credits before I could go to architecture school. Where did I choose to go? Well, I went to Rhode Island School of Design in broad-spectrum design, three-dimensional, two-dimensional, uh, calligraphy, photography, all that. And for the engineering and math, etc., I went to Ole Miss. So that worked out for me very well. On the basis of all that, I got into Berkeley, Berkeley's College of Environmental Design, and stayed in the Bay Area for two years pursuing a degree and went into advertising. I went to Atlanta, Georgia, 
knocked on advertising doors until I got a job. And fortunately, I was able to do things of a creative nature. Uh, I was, first of all, a creative director and audiovisual production manager. And um, while I was working there, I chanced to see Piedmont Park in Atlanta and went there on my lunch breaks, hung out with the horticulturist, and saw a need for a botanical garden. And that would be the site. It's an urban park, kind of like Central Park in New York, though not as big. And uh, inserting a botanical garden into it, sort of like the Conservancy Garden in in New York's garden um, would work out. I saw a need for three things, a, a natural history museum, a better art museum, and a botanical garden. I knew the first two were beyond my scope, both in terms of fundraising and actual abilities, though I had interest in them. I knew I could pull off the botanical garden, and I did. And you have the notes and story on that. So this background of very interesting and diverse um, influences in your life from your very early childhood up through your graduate school work, you really were exposed to a lot of different, um, both landscapes, natural landscapes, and architectural landscapes. And somewhere along here, um, maybe at RISD, maybe as you were starting to form the idea for the botanical gardens in Atlanta, where do you see your natural interest in the 3D sculpture being a really important part of what you found to be a beautiful garden? Where did that start coming to play? Well, as you mentioned, RISD, I did take three-dimensional design, which is essentially sculpture, and they taught that in all media. They taught it in clay and carving and all that sort of thing, construction. So, yes, that was definitely an early interest in sculpture. Um, and then at Berkeley, uh, you could take electives in everything. I took electives in landscape architecture, city planning, photography, and sculpture. So at Berkeley, again, sculpture. And um, that stayed with me. So when I got to Atlanta and found that job finally um, and married Andrea, my wife of 43 years who unfortunately died in 08, uh, we found a wonderful house near Emory University with a great deal of property. It was about an acre, which is larger than, of course, most people have. But I backed up to Emory and had about access to three more acres and two creeks and lots of topography and um, expanded onto that and got their permission to build some things on it, ponds and trails and eventually placing a sculpture. So it's quite a large area to um, scatter sculpture about. And the only way you can have that much sculpture is to make it yourself. I would very much like to have bought Henry Moores and God knows who all, and scattered them about, but I couldn't afford it. But one can afford to make one's own sculpture. So that's basically how I came to have my own sculpture garden. And of course, I've tried to influence ABG, the Botanical Garden, to collect as much sculpture as they have also. And you have been instrumental or a participant in bringing some pretty remarkable sculpture exhibits to the Botanical Gardens, uh, including a Henry Moore exhibit and the Chihuly glass sculptures. Yes. Talk about what, what these were like in the garden. And one of the important notes that I have made is that the Chihuly was one of the biggest programs which first came to the Botanical Gardens in 2004, and they are reprising this exhibit this coming spring of 2016. 
Talk about those those two different exhibits in the garden and what you what you responded to in them and what you felt visitors responded to in them. Yes, uh, I uh, first saw Chihuly's work on the West Coast uh, in Tacoma, Washington, and, and all up and down the West Coast. I later saw some of his work uh, actually on Long Island. Uh, I have a summer place in Shelter Island, and near there, East Hampton, there is a wonderful garden um, called the Longhouse Gardens, and um, it was set up by Jack Lenore Larson, the, the great um, designer and uh, textile expert. Uh, but he um, gave that garden, made it a public garden eventually, and he had an early exhibit of Chihuly in the Garden. It's the first time I ever heard of Chihuly in the Garden, meaning that his glass work would be in- enhancing and enhanced by um, in gardens, which it was. And that's the first place I actually saw it. So the idea of Chihuly in the Garden became very popular, and everybody's doing it. As you say, we first did it in '04, and it was so successful that um, they decided to do it again this coming spring. I feel that sculpture, is certainly that first uh, experience with Jack Lenore Larson's garden on Long Island, a very intimate connection, because Chihuly would actually make uh, flower-like forms. Uh, many of these things just looked like growing forms, as you know they are. They're very, very organic, organic yeah. all that. Yeah, and so that enhancement. Um, but uh, I, I don't so much do that. Um, I just pursue whatever kind of sculpture I want to make uh, and then uh, cite it so that the plants uh, symbiotically relate to it. And you've seen some of that in the pictures I've sent you. And uh, so the colors are picked up. I'll, I'll have a, um, uh, uh, like a hexagonal sculpture with about four or five different colors going around the circle, and each of those picks up a, rot- a rhododendron or a uh, azalea color. And so you see the plant and you see the sculpture and they relate. And it's just um, the, the, the retina retains the one and moves on to the other. It's kind of like a, a balance of color that way. Mm-hmm. That The hexagonal piece that you have in your garden that I've seen pictures of very much reminded me of a color wheel uh, yes. with, the, with the garden working around it. And, and maybe it's interesting because the experience of seeing, say, the much more humanistic Henry Moore type of sculpture versus the very organic, um, either plant-like or sea life-like sculptures of the glasswork of Chihuly, both bring a different response for me, but um, maybe maybe the Chihuly is actually more invigorating and the Henry Moore is a little more calming. I'm not, I'm not sure which, but they're, they're a very different response and yet there's something about this that clearly speaks to garden lovers of all ages and varieties. It was the biggest show you've ever had at Atlanta and the biggest one they've ever had at Denver. I remember seeing a Chihuly installation at the Victoria and Albert in London, and it was very moving. And a lot of the pieces you see on the West Coast are inside. But to see these outside is something else altogether. Any any thoughts yes. on that kind of relation? Yes, it's it's the organic nature of it. Uh, the colors certainly uh, are botanical colors, horticultural colors. Uh, the the sinuosity of the forms, the the, the growing growing aspect. They seem to be growing out of the earth. I'm thinking specifically of some long blue tubes that he does, and then sticks in the ground. They're kind of like a reverse stalactite, and they just look like. No plants you've ever seen, but definitely organic and definitely kind of growing out of the ground. And another thing that he did for us, he he made a beautiful fountain for us. And, of course, that's so much a botanical garden sort of thing. You have to have these great fountains. And to have one that's that's literally moving glass, 
um, is, is fabulous, and, and we have that. Then he did one that hangs in the conservatory, so it was actually hanging amidst uh, growing palms and, and great jungle-like effects, and that was so uh, interesting and organically relating each to the plant to the sculpture and the sculpture to the plant. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see more of your work as your garden comes into bloom. Um, the colorful pieces, which are sometimes, they, they complement the garden with their color, and yet they contrast with the garden with their structure. And both effects create a response in, in a viewer, which is which is great, which is interesting and, and fun and makes you want to move to the next piece. And I hope everything goes well for the Chihuly exhibit at the Botanical Gardens in Atlanta this spring as well. Thank you for being on the show, George. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Dale Chihuly was born in Tacoma, Washington in 1941. His book, Chihuly Garden Installations, describes his vivid memories of his mother, Viola's, Tacoma garden ablaze with azaleas and rhododendrons in spring. As a family, they would visit the famed Seymour Glasshouse Conservatory in Tacoma's Wright Park to see the annual flower shows. Chihuly earned his MFA from the Rhode Island School of Design in 1968 and began his career. With the loss of his left eye in a car accident in 1976, he lost depth perception. And reviewers note that subsequently, he literally began to see things differently. His work became far more organically formed and characterized by off-center, asymmetrical pieces created by a team and often series of pieces put together to form larger, more intricate holes, as in his Vessel, Seaform, and Chandelier series. In 1995, he made one of his earliest garden and glasshouse installations at Lismore Castle in Ireland. When I consider the stories of Mary Pat Matheson, George DeMann, and the artist Dale Chihuly, I'm struck by the infinite number of curving pathways that can lead us to where we are and where we meet up, in the garden or in life. From a plant-based perspective, a connecting thread running through these narratives is the welcome bloom and scent of spring azaleas and rhododendrons. The brightness of the globe-like inflorescences, each orb made up of many individual flowers, are like small colorful vessels creating chandeliers themselves. They range in color from pure white to cream to yellow, pale pink to fuchsia pink, orange to vibrant red. While many of us associate rhododendrons and azaleas with Asia, at least 27 different native species characterize and light up the acidic-soiled, often sloping woodlands of America's coastal and intermountain west and the eastern seaboard and southeast. The rhododendrons of North America are representatives of primitive angiosperms, members of the genus bloomed here 50 million years ago. The name comes from the Greek for rose tree. These plants are one part of the alchemy that inoculated, as Mary Pat so aptly put it, these three people to be the garden supporters they are today. If I had an azalea walk like the one winding through the native hardwood Storza Woods at the Atlanta Botanical Garden, with which Chihuly glasswork would I pair and enliven it? Thank you so much for listening in. Join me again next week as the conversation continues with Dr. Bill Thomas, 
gardener, farmer, parent with his wife Jude, as well as being a Harvard-trained geriatrician and international authority on elder care. In the 1990s, he co-founded with his wife Jude a transformative philosophical approach to how we care for our elders or ourselves as we age, known as the Eden Alternative. In the Eden Alternative, Dr. Thomas began his work challenging us as individuals and as a culture to reframe how we view and imagine life in elderhood. Among other things, he encourages us to begin seeing it as a normal and healthy developmental stage of life that should be far less like a hospital or a prison ward and a lot more like a garden. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Matt Schiltz. Audio archives of the program can be found weekly at mynspr.org. More detailed information and photographs can be found at JewelGarden.com. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.